I think Sarah and I have a challenge of like trying to make each other cry when we introduce each other at these things. So I'm actually going to start with a clip so I don't cry when I'm starting to talk. But this is my first clip, and I hope you can she see it. She went to school with my mother. Where'd you go, huh? That picture was taken before I knew what rain and heat and mud can do to your disposition. But it isn't raining today. Gosh, it's beautiful here. Just look at that yellow sun. And away off in the distance, those lovely little white clouds. Those lovely little white clouds could easily be gunfire. Oh, how awful. On such a day, boys getting killed, people getting... But you know, Emil, I don't think it's the end of the world like everyone else thinks. Do you? Perhaps the end of some worlds. Mm, not this one. It can't be. I, I can't work myself up to getting that low. You think I'm crazy, too? Well, they all do over at the Fleet Hospital. You know what they call me? Knucklehead Nelly. <laughs> I suppose I am. But I can't help it. When the sky is a bright canary yellow I forget every cloud I've ever seen So they call me a cockeyed optimist Immature and incurably green I have heard people rant and rave and bellow That we're done and we might as well be dead But I'm only a cockeyed optimist And I can't get it into my head I hear the human race is falling on its face and hasn't very far to go But every whippoorwill is selling me a bill And telling me it just ain't so I could say life is just a bowl of jello And appear more intelligent and smart But I'm stuck like a dope with a thing called hope and I can't get it out of my heart Not this heart. That's Nell from you want South Pacific. I kind of hate her a little bit. Um, that takes place at the end of World War II, and even though some people's worlds had ended or were turned upside down, that wasn't going to spoil her happy mood. She was going to be in a good mood no matter what. Um, that yellow sky looks like jaundice to me, and it might be her nine-inch waist, but I really hate her. I don't like her. Um, but don't worry. She finds out that Emil, her love interest, has some things in his family that she doesn't like, and so pretty soon she's going to wash that man right out of her hair. That's in one of the scenes. But before the curtain closes on the first act of that musical, 
Um, she's in love with a wonderful guy, the same guy, again. So I don't know if she's so much a classic optimist or just the victim of Rodgers and Hammerstein's emotional whiplash kind of style of writing characters. Um, I grew up in a musical household, not so much on South Pacific, but my musical icons were Reb Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof, um, Send Us a Cure, He Begs of God, We Have the Sickness Already. That's me. Um, I also love Miss Hannigan from Annie. She's the orphanage mistress who makes bathtub gin in her nightgown. She flirts with delivery men and she yells at small children. These are my people. <laughs> I'm not Nell from South Pacific, even if I want to be. Um, I think that my cynicism about optimism and my general skepticism about life was backed up by my surroundings. My dad, when I was growing up, was a hospice chaplain, and my mom is a therapist who works with traumatized children. So the world around me didn't look pie in the sky like Nell from South Pacific. Um, we didn't lack for anything, but once a year my dad would watch The Grapes of Wrath on film, the black and white version, based on the Depression-era Steinbeck novel, and he did this as like a masochistic fantasy that we were all going to starve to death. Um, so he would do this and he'd peel apples while he was watching this and make vats of applesauce to fill our freezer, because as God as his witness, he was not going to starve again, even though we'd never actually starved in the first place. We just like to think about it a lot and dwell on all the terrible possibilities. Um, I went off to college, and some of you may, some of you, most of you probably know about The Onion, the satirical newspaper. Believe it or not, it used to be just in print. That's how old I am. I would pick up the print version of The Onion on my way to class. And The Onion um, has a great time with optimists. They have headlines like, Perky Optimist Brings Joy Everywhere She Leaves. <laughs> Optimist coffin half full. <laughs> Paranoid optimist just knows someone is out to get him a present. <laughs> there are more, but they're not PG language, so um, you can look those up later. Um, my cynicism extends to my day-to-day -day life beyond college. These are pictures of me as a child. So this is the first one with the curled up lip. And then the second one is my brother super happy. And I'm so happy to have my bangs curled for this photo. Um, so my husband, um, usually he would frame himself as a, um, usually as a pleasantly surprised pessimist to my usually disappointed optimist, that's another story. But he'll usually say things like, worst case scenario, we'll make two trips. And I'm like, you have a very limited idea of what a worst case scenario is. <laughs> my worst case scenario involves we make two trips, we all vomit, and then we die. So my worst case scenarios almost always involve vomit. Last weekend, I was getting some things out of our closet. We live in Texas, we live in Houston, Texas. And it's not unusual to have very large cockroaches, even in the house. And I was shaking something out, and a cockroach flew out, and Neil killed it. Sorry, St. Francis. Um, and he said, I was, like, giving myself carpal tunnel from doing this. I was like, and he's like, well, that could have been worse. Could have been worse. Could have been worse. Um, so with my sunny outlook on life, I was super excited to read Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Bright Sided, 
how positive thinking is undermining America. Because who doesn't like to read books that back up their own worldview? I do. <laughs> so Erin Rake drew on her own experience as a breast cancer patient, and she noticed something she called the tyranny of positive thinking in the breast cancer community. She noticed that patients were encouraged to think positively about their treatment, and if they didn't, they were admonished by other people in the breast cancer community. Um, she noticed this kind of ideological force of positive thinking, one that encourages us to deny reality, submit cheerfully to misfortune, and blame only ourselves for our fate. She, once she recovered from breast cancer and she was really interested in this ideological force of the power of positive thinking, um, she went beyond the breast cancer world of optimism and dove right into the power of positive thinking in the religious realm. Um, instead of stories of suffering and redemption, Erin Rake notes this positive theology offers promises of wealth, success, and health in this life now, or at least very soon. God plays only a supporting role in these narratives, and by no means an indispensable one. Uh, this is from Aaron Rake's book, Gone is the Mystery and Awe. He has been reduced to a kind of majordomo or personal assistant. He fixeth my speeding ticket. He secureth me a good table at the restaurant. He leadeth me to book contracts. Even in these minor tasks, Aaron Reich noticed, the invocation of God seems more of a courtesy, just kind of side note, than a necessity. And once you've accepted the law of attraction, which is big in the power of positive thinking, that the mind acts as a magnet attracting whatever it visualizes, you have granted humans omnipotence. This, Barbara Ehrenreich notes, makes this religion about us instead of about God. These narratives are long on purpose and opportunity, but short on sin and redemption. And it's kind of nice to think that a positive attitude could get us whatever we want, that that's within our power and control, and it's especially tempting to apply that way of thinking to others, to tell people that if they just thought about things differently, their life would turn out differently. So that's where we start to hear things like, God only gives you what you can handle. And my favorite, other Rogers and Hammerstein, Mother Superior, where God closes a door, somewhere he opens a window. Uh, that is from the Mother Superior in The Sound of Music. And even though she's a really cool nun who tricks the Nazis, that God opening a window when he closes the door, that's not in the Bible, not even in Proverbs. Sorry. <laughs> It could be worse. Here's the thing, it could always be worse. This is not helpful. And if you want creative ideas about how things could be worse, I can help you out with that. I'm good at that. Um, but I don't think it necessarily helps out when things are bad. It could be worse. Um, always look on the bright side of life, in the life of Brian, in the crucifixion scene, my favorite. Uh, none of us want to be on the receiving end of these little sayings. This is a way we distance ourselves from other people's pain. And if we can prescribe a positive attitude to fix their problem, then maybe their tragedy won't rub off on us. I think this is something we all do. Uh, another book about positive thinking and the prosperity gospel is Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved by Kate Bowler. Kate Bowler is an assistant professor at Duke Divinity School, and she's also a wife, the mother of a young son, and a patient living with stage four colon cancer. 
In this memoir, she gently but firmly, that's my mom saying, gently but firmly, it's such a good mom saying, she gently but firmly calls out the heresy of the prosperity gospel, but especially as it relates to her life with cancer. She recounts her own encounters with tragedy, and she describes the limitations of the prosperity gospel when it's applied to human life. She gently but firmly counters the harmful narrative that her pain was somehow deserved or that it happened to her because of some spiritual deficiency or some deficiency in her attitude. She had, by all accounts, done everything right to deserve a long, rich life, and she still has a terrible terminal disease. Um, and she does, she explains why this prosperity gospel is attractive to so many people. Um, and she also talks about how the tyranny of prescriptive joy goes beyond the churches where she grew up, and it extends to the cancer clinics where she was receiving treatments. And she describes these cancer, cancer centers as um, they're trying to be cheerful, and they're trying to have this prescriptive joy, um, but she describes kind of the bleak reality that she's had in these waiting rooms, um, and under a poster that says, laughter is the best medicine. And she said, Lord, I hope not. And so if I grew up on musicals, my children have grown up on um, the great Academy Award-winning Captain Underpants. Laughter. Isn't laughter the best medicine? Medicine <gasps> is the best medicine. So, <laughs> Medicine is the best medicine. <laughs> so that's, that's our little, that's our favorite at our house. Medicine is the best medicine. So Kate Buller describes the loneliness that comes with the kind of distance created by the prosperity gospel. If everyone is full of prescriptive joy or the kind of minimizing of people saying, well, at least, at least you got to have a baby before you were diagnosed. Um, that's the kind of minimizing thing. Or maybe if you tried this herbal supplement, they're not able to sit with her in her tremendous grief. And the tyranny of prescriptive joy, I've used two examples of people who have cancer. It's not limited to cancer patients, of course. Survivors of sexual assault may not hear exactly the same language, that laughter's the best medicine. But survivors are repeatedly told that they can, if they can own their own story, or wash that man right out of their hair, or rise above their circumstances, and if they can just be strong enough resilient enough and work hard enough at it that they can do all those things. And this prescriptive joy, the tyranny of positive thinking, can very much feel like a substitute for God. And what makes it more confusing is when people use godly language around these concepts. God wouldn't give you more than you can handle. This is seculosity in kind of a scary way. Putting a God label on something that we're expected to do for ourselves. And this is all to say that we as humans are bad at this. We're bad at sitting with people in their grief and in their pain. But God is not bad at this. Reading Barbara Ehrenreich and Kate Bowler, it's easy for me to feel super evolved and sophisticated, especially compared to Nell in South Pacific. Uh, my pessimist bent and my less than positive attitude about life makes me feel super tight with Jesus, that Jesus would never tell people, he wouldn't tell lepers that it could be worse. He wouldn't tell tax collectors that when God closes a door somewhere, he opens a window. And so I start to pat myself on the back and I get a little bit of a shoulder ache because I have to be very careful anytime that 
I put myself and Jesus on one side of the equation and everybody else on the other. That's, that's not a good place to be. Um, and I don't think that my pessimism is going to save me from anything either. That if optimism isn't going to save people, positive thinking isn't going to save people, I really don't think my pessimism is going to save me from anything except for maybe some disappointment. And um, there was probably 10 years ago when iPads first came out, I went to our front step and there was an envelope, like a flat envelope from Apple on our front step. And I thought, someone sent us an iPad. I don't know who would have sent us an iPad, but I thought someone sent us an iPad and I was super excited. And I opened it up and it wasn't an iPad. It was a calendar from iPhoto that I had ordered myself like six weeks earlier and Apple's shipping is just super slow. Um, but my, my momentary glimpse at optimism just kind of left me like, wah, wah. this is actually something that I thought I wanted. Nobody sent us an iPad. Um, so my pessimism might save me from a little bit of disappointment, but I don't think it's saving me in the way that I need to be saved. And I feel like I need to be fair um, to optimists, because not everyone says trite sayings like it could be worse. Uh, no, not everybody has that bent of optimism. And um, this week I've been reflecting a lot. Our friends, um, we have two good friends who died in a plane crash on Monday, um, Stuart and Angie Kensinger. And you may have seen it in the news as a small plane crash in West Texas. And Stuart specifically, they go to our church, they're lovely, lovely people. And Stuart specifically is kind of this classic optimist. He's always cheerful, always had a smile on his face. And it didn't, that optimism didn't keep him from seeing problems in the world. He met the problems that he had with a smile and with grace and with humility. And he was so optimistic that he co-founded something called Jerusalem Peace Builders. And that's an organization that brings youth together from Israel who practice Islam and Judaism and Christianity together. And he brings these teenagers to our church camp in Texas and they talk to each other and they learn about each other and they listen to each other's music. And he saw hope in that community. And you really have to be an optimist to find hope in 12 to 14 year olds. Like that's just a group that I don't want to spend a whole lot of time with, but Stuart did, and he was really, really good at it. So I feel like I need to give optimists, and especially Stuart, a fair shake for seeing hope in the problems of the world. Um, but I did promise that I'd give pessimists equal time in this talk, so it's my turn to pick on myself for a while. I met an old friend of yours. Oh? Owen Jenkins. Oh. Owen. Now, there's a blast from the past. Do you remember him? He remembers you. Of course I remember him. He had the longest nose hair in the free world. Well, he doesn't now. He hardly has any hair anywhere. Owen's been gone from Chickapin Parish since God was a boy. I'd forgotten it ever existed. Well, now he lives in Monroe and goes to First Presbyterian. When he found out where I was from, he asked me if I knew you. He used to live in Ohio somewhere. His wife just died recently. He's moved back down here. Does this story have a point? No, not really. He just remembers you fondly, I think. Well, I can't imagine why. He was not a bad fellow. But I managed to run him off and marry the first of two total deadbeats. Well, maybe sometime I could arrange for us all to get together. Maybe not. Well, why not? Shelby, 
I'll manage in a few decades to marry the two most worthless men in the universe and then proceeded to have the three most ungrateful children ever conceived. The only reason people are nice to me is because I have more money than God. Now, I'm not about to open a new can of worms. Weezer. What? If this is really how you feel, it isn't healthy. Maybe you should think about coming down to the guidance center and talking to someone with that help. I'm not crazy, Malin. I've just been in a very bad mood for 40 years. I'm not crazy. Just been in a very bad mood for 40 years. I think Weezer might be everyone's favorite grouch. That's from Steel Magnolias, if you haven't seen it. Um, we might not want to be exactly like Weezer, but she seems more fun and a little more edgy than Annelle and maybe more realistic than Truvy. Um, Steel Magnolias is based on a true story, and it was a play before it was a movie. Robert Harling, the playwright, gave an interview to Garden and Gun magazine a few years ago for the anniversary of the play. Uh, that's right, Garden and Gun magazine. I live in Texas. I neither garden nor gun, but that's what's on my coffee table. I like the photos and the dog stories and the interviews with Robert Harling. Um, Harling told Garden and Gun that the play is about his deceased sister. Um, Shelby's based on her. And then he drew on his experiences in small town life to write the play. And he talked about how he named all the characters. And everybody knows an Anel or a Truvy, and Weezer's kind of a classic Southern name, but he really didn't want to name Weezer too close to anything, to any one person in the town, because he was afraid someone would be upset if they were Weezer. But the play came out, and this whole group of women came to see it in New York from their small town in Louisiana, and everyone was like, he wrote Weezer for me. They all thought that they were Weezer. And so after he was so afraid to name her after somebody, turns out they all thought that they were her anyway. And Shirley MacLaine had her pick of roles for this movie, and she picked Weezer. She wanted to try out the kind of the grouchy old lady role. Um, and Weezer, uh, her friends put up with her, but her pessimism doesn't really save her from grief and disappointment. She's cynical about the world, and she misses out on a lot. Um, you might remember the scene, I do not see plays because I can nap at home for free, and I don't see movies because they're trash, and they got nothing but naked people in them, and I don't read books because if they're any good, they're going to make them into a miniseries. She might miss out on a few things, and they kind of offer up her up as like a slapping sacrifice at the end. Um, I might not be at Weezer-level crabbiness yet, um, but I relate to her more than I relate to Nell in South Pacific. And apparently a lot of people do. We all have a little bit of Weezer in us. So you might be asking, like Weezer did, does this story have a point? Uh, I think God has a wide embrace for those of us who see the world in rose-colored glasses and for those of us with a more gloomy outlook on life. And we don't need to look any further than the Psalms to find evidence of ancient emotional whiplash and Jesus was born into the lineage of the psalmist himself. Sometimes within the same psalm, Psalm 89 goes from, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever, to how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Just in a few dozen verses. I'm worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. 
These are not the psalms that appear on Instagram with a mountain behind them, generally. They're not positive thinking, uh, page-a-day calendar psalms. You have put me in the lowest pit. Darkness is my closest friend. I'm going to make this a Pinterest thing, by the way. Just wait for it. But in the same book, we have psalms of praise, and these do appear on cross-stitch samplers. These are in those motivational posters. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. These are the, these are the page a day calendar psalms. And if there's room under the large tent of God's mercy for all of that roller coaster in one person, then I have faith that he can make room for all shades of humanity and moodiness. Even those of us who consider ourselves more Weezer than Nell might consider that a lot of the choices we make reveal an inner optimism that we might be trying to shove under the rug. I brought two children into this world by my very own choice, and even though one of them had colic and it felt like he was in a very bad mood for 40 years, I don't think I would have chosen to have children if I didn't have some hope for humanity. If I want to dig deeper, Sarah mentioned that my husband's a priest. He's actually trained in theology and not just thumbing through the Psalms when he's bored in church. Um, I look to his sermons a lot. A few years ago, he gave a sermon on a reading from Ecclesiastes, and I'm shamelessly borrowing from it here. I have permission. Some of you know this church and these people. This is Bruton Parish Church where we were married. That's us. And the man with the gray hair behind us is Bishop Ed Salmon, who I know of you, a lot of you have a special relationship, had a special relationship with Bishop Salmon. He died a few years ago. Um, he did our wedding. He performed the ceremony. And in the Episcopal Church, there are words that they read from the Book of Common Prayer. And the bride and the groom repeat after the celebrant. And there are words during the vows, and then there are words during the exchange of rings. And as I was placing the ring on Neil's finger... Bishop Salmon um, said, he was supposed to say, with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you. And Bishop Salmon forgot the part about all that I have. So I just said, with all that I am, I honor you. And I knew there was something missing, but you don't really stop Bishop Salmon in the middle of your wedding and say, I think I'm supposed to promise more to him. Um, so we just let it go. And I asked Neil afterwards, he's like, yeah, he totally forgot that part. So for 15 years, whenever there's one brownie left in the pan, I'm like, I didn't promise you all that I have. So, <laughs> But Neil did promise, I only brought in like an ancient Labrador retriever and like a broken down Oldsmobile into our marriage. And so there wasn't really that much that I have to give. But Neil has these beautiful sermons that I'm shamelessly stealing because he promised me all that he has. So, sorry. Um, so in this sermon from Ecclesiastes, we have the voice of the teacher, sometimes called the preacher. He observes that the wise die just like fools. He finds God inaccessible and indifferent, and his observations of the world are at direct odds with the teachings he received. He concludes that all is vanity and a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. You kind of picture him like crossing his arms in the back of the party smoking a cigarette. Like, all is vanity. The teacher-preacher in Ecclesiastes sounds like a less entertaining version of Weezer Boudreaux. 
The question, though, is not who we'd rather hang out with at, the par at a party, hashtag Team Weezer, Team Now from South Pacific, but how much either one of them we can see in ourselves. And I'm really glad that the teacher slash preacher, I'm glad his voice is there in Ecclesiastes, giving voice to the inner pessimist in all of us. As Christians, we can keep reading, though, and get to the word of hope in Luke's gospel. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. It doesn't say that there won't be pain, but it do also doesn't say that we have to figure out how we have to wish all of this to come true. Our attitude does not matter when it comes to our salvation. We don't have to be brave or stoic to be loved. And that might be terrifying news or that might be liberating. And it's probably a little bit of both. I know it is for me. And so as Christians, pessimists and optimists alike, we are, to quote that knucklehead Nellie in South Pacific, we're stuck with a, like a dope with a thing called hope. We might not believe that the dry cleaner will get our order right. We might be super pessimistic about that. Or we might be the optimist that feels like the only tigger in a family of Eeyores. We might struggle through cancer and addiction and traffic and humidity and still have the outrageous belief that we're saved, not by our attitudes, but by our Savior. We are stuck like a dope with a thing called hope. Fleming Rutledge reminds us that the cross is irreligious because no human being individually or human beings collectively would have projected their hopes, wishes, longings, and needs onto a crucified man. The most fervent glass half full optimist would call that foolish, and the worst case scenario pessimist wouldn't believe it either. It's so outrageous that it turns upside down the teachings of the preacher, the wise die just like fools. And it embraces all of the roller coaster emotion of the Psalms because Jesus' humanity brought him right into the psalmist's very human world. This is better news than even the most fervent optimist can wish for. And I'll take it and I'll say thank you. <laughs>